0: Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week inside the Roleplayer Studio, I'm very lucky to have Vincent Baker, game designer and publisher of such titles as Dogs in the Vineyard, Apocalypse World, and Kill Puppies for Satan. So without further ado, hi there Vincent, how's it going?
1: Hi, it's going great. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's an honour to, uh, to have you on But for the benefit of those couple of people that have got uh, no idea who you are And they've probably got less of an idea who I am And perhaps have stumbled upon this uh, by accident How long have you been a role player?
1: Uh, a million years Since I was seven or nine or something So um, 30 years yeah, 33 good. years yeah,
0: it seems like a, uh, a long time when you think about it to, in those terms, but I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of something else I would have rather done for uh, for 33 years. So how did you get started in role-playing, and what did you play first?
1: Well, my um, uh, I have a couple of uncles who are about my same age, and they had an Atari 800 computer back when I was 7 or 9, or however old I was, and we played Zork on right. the computer a lot. Nice. Uh, really loved it. And sometimes the computer wasn't available to us, so we would play Zork without it. And I would be the computer, and they would be the adventurer. Nice. And we started out actually, they, I would make them write down the command, and they would hand it to me, and I would write down oh, my nice. reply. That lasted for, I don't know, 45 minutes or something. Right. And then we just talked. Right. Um, so that's how I, that's how I started role playing. Uh, I don't think I saw a real role playing game book until high school.
0: Right, and had your ideas about role playing sort uh, already developed in those uh, by that time? You're like, hey, look, there's somebody else doing it a slightly different way, and, and did that was that sort of a seminal series of events which uh, which sort of led to your the direction you took with your systems and games that you uh, designed.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah, um uh by the time I ever saw a real I, I must have seen a character sheet somewhere or something um because I had an idea of what character sheets should look like so I started making character sheets and I started making you know weapon lists and magic spell lists or I forget I forget what um but so by the time I ever I ever encountered a a real role-playing game um I had already started well on the process of designing um role-playing games and uh, i don't I don't remember in particular whether there were any striking similarities or striking differences. I guess that means there weren't um, but uh uh for for a while I sought after you know official games like real games um, uh I picked up some dragon magazines in a yard sale one time and memorized those like three old back issues of dragon right. magazines right um this would have been in the in the mid eighties, maybe. Um, but by the time I really played real role playing games, um, the role playing I was doing without them was every bit as good, right. um, and so I wasn't I wasn't overwhelmed by how much I had been missing out on.
0: Yeah, you're kind of like one of those people that uh, the anthropologists look for. You know, those tribes that have been that have grown up in isolation <laughs> to everybody else, and you could have put to little put you inside a room and, and give you a box of <laughs> your red box Dungeons and Dragons and see what this this Vincent Baker chap makes of it. Bear in mind that he's sort of grown up in uh, in, in a world where no role playing exists, and it's I, only the role playing I... that he came up with himself.
1: I never played Dungeons and Dragons until Redbox D&D in two thousand and seven or something two thousand and eight. Right. Um, my friend Ben ran a game for us, and oh, it was so fun. That game is it. It was um. What's his name? Uh, Mold Bay he's D&D. Yep, right, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: uh, he's the blue. I think he's the blue. The blue box was he the editor maybe, of the blue box? Maybe, maybe I don't know.
1: I don't. I don't know. <laughs> ben, ben had a PDF on his on his laptop that he was working from. Right. Um, uh, that's that's a tight little game I was I was impressed
0: Right, and so being That it was 25 years or so After your initial forays into um, What did you call it If you didn't call it role playing Like are you aware of it being called role playing Oh,
1: we called it adventuring
0: Alright, nice Now,
1: by the time I was in junior high or something I was aware enough of role playing games I'd never played D&D uh, again Until that recently but um i played talislanta and shadow run in high school oh. uh, but but when i was little we called it adventuring
0: right so talislanta and then uh, some shadow run did you when you said you sought out games to play did you spend a lot of time trying to collect all of the books as, as Shadowrun people seem to do no
1: no uh, my friend uh, my friend travis did collect all the books um but i didn't at all right. i uh I bought. I owned Talislanta, and I owned First Edition Cyberpunk. Those were the first two games I ever bought. right uh, Ars Magica, a couple of years later.
0: Right, and then and then did you get into the storyteller games at all?
1: Um, barely. I owned Vampire. I bought Vampire in college. Played a few sessions. Um, and- uh, played some Mage. I tried to run some Mage, and that didn't go great, but it went okay. In, in college
0: right and how long was it before you got back to designing your own or at least finding um, that you were more interested in writing games or at least playing games that you had written than the ones that you could uh, get on the shelves uh,
1: well that's a good question um, in college um, what I mostly did is like I had I had oh, some iron crown cyberpunk monstrosity source book. Can't remember the name of it And um, cyberspace was the name of it yeah. And um, I had cyberpunk first edition And I really mashed them together to run them Like I liked the cybernetics In um, in cyberspace better right. I don't know what uh, and then a lot of the a lot of the role playing I did in college and after college like immediately after college was pretty free form we had character sheets but we'd go sessions without looking at them um, right we'd, we'd sort of uh, ars magic i'm mostly talking about now right. um, played a ton of ars magica as a in my 20s um ton of ars magica but right. so we'd internalized the sort of Roll dice and try to get above a seven or whatever Whatever it was mm. um, And so we would do that a few times a session But, but mostly we didn't um, Mostly we free-formed it right. And then uh, I started Like I wrote a Heartbreaker a, a fantasy game that would only Have led to Heartbreak right. um, Sort of at the end of my 20s I guess Right. I had a, a giant notebook full of handwritten role-playing game. Right. Um, and then uh, then I started publishing. Um, um, do you want to hear about that? The The first game I published? Of course. Uh, I think listeners would be interested in that. It was uh, Kill Puppies for Satan. Right. And um, the new Ars Magica edition. It must have been Ars Magica 3rd edition was right. coming out that year. And, uh, oh my God. Okay. So, um, I was really poor. Uh, my wife and I were working part time. We had a couple of little kids. Um, we were, we were really poor. And so my role-playing budget for that year was $60. I knew I was going to have $60. If I saved up, I could spend $60 to buy role-playing games with. And, right. uh, I could already tell that I was going to be disappointed in this book that I was going to buy this, or as a book. Right. And so I said, well, let's see how far sixty dollars takes me publishing. And so I I printed I don't know, twenty-five copies of my game at work and um, took them to the copy shop to have them to have them coil bound. Right. And that was that was some of the sixty dollars and then I mailed them unsolicited to several people, um, Jonathan Tweet and uh, uh, the Pellegrin guy whose name I knew until I Tried to think of it Um, James Wallace, James Wallace is who I was talking about He's not Pellegrin, Hogshead Um, James Wallace, Uh, a handful of people Abandoned some copies on the local Game store Stoops in the middle of the night Right Um, And that was Pretty fun Uh, Jonathan Tweet wrote me Back, which was uh, a big deal For me Mm. And then, um, uh uh, he said he said he loves to tell people that in all of Kill Puppies for Satan, there's not a misspelled word and there's not a sentence that isn't a good sentence and there's not a paragraph that isn't a good paragraph. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's,
0: it's good. How did he feel about the game? <laughs> um,
1: he, he pointed out a mechanical flaw with it that is, in fact, a mechanical flaw, which is that um, killing puppies for Satan is the least fun part of the game, but it sort of is essential. And right. so that's <laughs> It you doesn't I mean? sound like a floral. That's, that's this this tension in play. Right. Um, uh, the game, if I may, the game is hilarious, and he thought it was hilarious too. He oh, really I, I, the I joke.
0: think you probably wouldn't have too much trouble convincing people that that was accurate. I mean, for nothing for nothing else, the uh, the hate mail that you've got is. Uh, <laughs> is The hate mail you've got is is brilliant. I mean, I think that um, that I'd be lucky to get. uh, I'd be lucky to get such. I mean, (laughs) people feeling strongly about it one way or the other. But what you've done with it, I think, is is genius.
1: Yeah, Uh, uh, that was great. I remember that first piece of hate mail for a little while. If you typed "puppies" into Google, "kill puppies for Satan" was third on the list. Nice, and um, I got so much hate mail. It's great. That was uh, sounds brilliant. um, but so so right about that same time, you know, um, within a year after that, I landed randomly on The Forge, which was a web forum for independently published role-playing games. And right. there were a bunch of people there at the time who were in kind of the similar situation with me. They had a little thing. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, we did a lot of trading them around. And, like, I would mail PDFs send PDFs. Uh, this was the beginning of PDFs. We felt very cutting edge. Yes. Um, I would send PDFs to anybody who asked for one, uh, with a note that said, "Hey, if you like this, send me five bucks." Yes. um, Nobody ever did. Uh, (laughs) Maybe maybe two people, but people talked about it a lot. Yes. Um, Yeah, there you go. And I got to, I got to read people's reactions to it online. Mm. Yes. And that was, that was the beginning of my publishing.
0: Right. Um, And so, from "Kill Puppies for Satan," what did you publish next?
1: Dogs in the Vineyard. Um. Uh. So. Kill Puppies for Satan was fun, and I, I never played it. Um, and then my friend Clinton, Clinton Nixon, who wrote um, Shadow of Yesterday and a bunch of other games. right? Um, he played it with his group. He sat down with his group, and he played it. And they, <laughs> they killed some puppies for Satan. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, he wrote about it, and he wrote some smart things and some very flattering things about right. it. Got his whole nice. group talking about it, and I said, "Wait, you mean that was that's a thing?" And it changed my whole changed my whole expectation. Like between between Kill Puppies for Satan and Dogs in the Vineyard, I'd written a bunch of little throwaway games and game sort of snapshots, game uh, uh, rough drafts and sketches. Hmm. Um, and just put them up online and sent them to whoever wanted them and linked people to them. We we were arguing about role playing theory a lot, and uh, I loved to illustrate my points in our arguments um, right. by designing games. Um, right. Well, that's uh, the best way to uh,
0: to do it, isn't it? You know, to, yeah, if you yeah, can... yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and I and I was perfectly happy with that until until Clinton played my game and wrote about actually playing it, and that that changed everything. I was like, whoa, I have to like now all i want to do is design games that people will play yes um, and that that you, you know l- put me on the uh, in in the way of like like from then on i didn't have the same sort of casual throw things around i still do game sketches and throw them around all the time but um it really changed my perspective on what was possible and what i could expect and what i could hope for yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. so I wrote a game called Dogs in the Vineyard, which was really it's really pretty ambitious at that point for me to do that. Um,
0: That's often the way though, isn't it? Like until you until you know what's I mean it when you start out you don't know what not what's not possible and what is too and ambitious. And when you're finished and you look back and and I forget exactly who I was talking about it, but before, but you know, like if you, I, I give the example that you know it's only once you're on top of the mountain and look back that you can really appreciate how far yeah. it is that you've come, right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, that that game did very well. Um, it set me up to to continue publishing for the next.
0: All right. And what about it? Did you, in retrospect, was it too ambitious, or did you feel it was ambitious at the time, but you were just deciding you were going to dream big rather than small?
1: Oh. No, no, I didn't. I didn't have any idea how. Um, it was very personal. Uh, it's about um, uh, pre-statehood Utah, right? right. Uh, and my family is Mormon. I grew up Mormon and surrounded by these stories, and it really uh, was, you know, by by designing a game um, and sort of giving myself that, I was able to like i I tricked myself into into really saying uh, really getting a bunch of stuff off my chest about my childhood and about my my relationship now with this religion right um, uh I think that that now i wouldn't I wouldn't dare undertake that
0: right you mean from a personal Very, standpoint or just yeah, from yeah, the yeah. scope of it right
1: no from a personal standpoint um it changed a lot in my life it uh I made peace with religion. I made peace with my family's religion. Right. Uh, made well, peace with my upbringing.
0: Yeah, if you're comfortable talk, talking about um, just sort of generally the the, the Mormon view on, on role-playing, Jen Dixon from uh, The Walking Eye who was in episode 17 was talking about um, – the proselytising of the uh, of her preachers and so forth from her uh, Baptist church regarding you know role playing and how dangerous it it was and yeah. and she said she had a devotional book that she cut the the core out of and put a a, a, a player's <laughs> guide or something on the on the inside of. And uh, and I was likening it to you know like teenage boys have have playboys and penthouses mm, hidden right. under their mattress, and she's got the devotional book with the Dungeons and Dragons Dungeons and got book in, uh, inside it. And so, what's the Mormon Church's? Uh, I mean, obviously Mormons can be different, just like any other religion or denomination of, of religion. But uh, what's the Mormon Church's sort of line on on role playing?
1: I don't I don't know if it has one. I had a couple of friends um, in. This would have been the first half of high school uh, when I lived in Utah. Um, A couple of friends who weren't allowed to play Dungeons & Dragons, um, their parents never made the leap beyond Dungeons & Dragons. Like, they weren't allowed to play Dungeons & Dragons. They were allowed to play Traveler. They were allowed to play Tunnels of Trolls or whatever. Right. Um, (laughs) Like, somehow it got in their head that Dungeons & Dragons was bad. But they never never connected that to other games. Um, Right. My parents, it never bothered them at all. Right. Um, uh, my mom wrote fiction uh, and she really valued our imaginations and she she was perfectly comfortable with right with what we were doing
0: right so in a wider sense then there's not really any particular line that the, that the Mormon church takes, although some parents obviously yeah. got the idea that Dungeons and Dragons was bad. And I I wonder if it's a little bit like swearing, like I think one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, but I don't think anywhere it says anything like you shan't you shan't swear. Right? Or does it? Mm-hmm. I mean I don't I'm not oh, I, yeah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not a biblical scholar but it's one of those things where religious people think that it's a, a bad thing for uh, for people to be, be into but they're not quite sure why when questioned about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, something like that.
0: And then so you wrote The uh, Dogs in the Vineyard And uh, you sort of tasted success And did that spur you on or did that Because I know Jay, I mean i'm i'm going to use your name in the same breath as jd challenger and you can decide how you feel about that but you know like he he wrote to the catcher in the rye and then and then found it incredibly difficult to to go on and do something else did you find that it was difficult after the success of dogs in the vineyard to to go ahead and produce something else was it intimidating at all or did you just have so much stuff yeah
1: no 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 i i um uh that that was a long dry spell after dogs in the vineyard um in, so that was, that was 2005. I finished Dogs in the Vineyard in the spring of 2005, and I didn't finish another game until 2008 or 2000, 2008. must have been. Um, and those were little games, uh, little experimental. The In a Wicked Age and Poisoned are the two games I published after. Right. After Dogs in the Vineyard. Um, but it was very difficult. And um, I really intentionally... Um, Published a different text A different kind of text With both In A Wicked Age and Poisoned Than I had with Dogs in the Vineyard um, uh, Written differently And especially very very short um, Where Dogs in the Vineyard Is is kind of expansive and talks you through This process mm, um, mm. Uh, Both In A Wicked Age and Poisoned Give you some bare procedure And a little bit of Some hints at how to play it And then expect you to work it out on your own Right um, and I did that. I did that very intentionally, and it 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 paid off in one sense, which is you know, in that people it 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 didn't create this expectation that I would always write games that were as as generous and forthcoming as Dogs in the Vineyard. Right. Um, uh, but I, I still get complaints about. People <laughs> trying to learn learn those games from the texts. Um, That's good. But that I mean, people it was, are into It was very difficult to publish, to design games, to finish games, and publish games. After Dogs in the Vineyard, it took right. me some years. And, to, and
0: so. so, did you have you know Apocalypse World sort of tucked away in your mind, and you just didn't you didn't want to commit to writing it because you you felt like it was too big an undertaking in comparison
1: to In a Wicked Age? Not at all. Not at all. I had no clue about Apocalypse World until one morning. Um, uh, uh, in 2008, fall of 2008. Wait, that can't be right. Anyway, whatever. Um, um, I read Gregor Hutton's game 316, I sat there and read it one morning. Right. And I said. Oh, is this what we're doing now, Gregor? And I uh, wrote the first character playbook for Apocalypse World that morning. It was the brainer, and um, um, just, that game fell out of my head. Uh, right, Apocalypse World did, and I, I had never considered doing a post-apocalyptic game. I didn't care about post-apocalyptic games at all. Right, um, had no clue until I, until I started writing it. Um, yeah.
0: I mean it, it fell out of your head, but it. It's certainly fallen into um, a lot of other people's heads there, because I, I know that Sean Nitner from um, from episode 4 and also Hamish Cameron episode 25 mm-hmm. both talked about um, uh, hacking the, the game Apocalypse World to various other settings and I'm imagining that uh, that, you know, I mean if somebody were to take Victoria and use the, the hazard system for resolution for any other type of game or setting, I'd be I'd be flattered that somebody would uh, Would do so, how do you feel about that sort of thing?
1: Oh, absolutely flattered Um uh, I knew, by by the time I published it I knew that Um It would be Extremely appealing Uh, as a, as a base For other games just, just by looking at how it worked and, and what it does Um, I knew that it would be Extremely appealing, I knew that Um, uh people would start immediately uh, adapting it. Right. Um, and I was delighted at the prospect and I did everything I could um, from, from pre-publication, did everything I could to to support that. There's a chapter in the book about about doing that.
0: Right. Um,
1: about adapting it to, to other genres and making it your own and doing whatever you want to it. Right. Um, you know I set up forums uh, explicitly for um I host web forums explicitly for people who are working on uh, hacks
0: right of the game and um, do you um do you encourage people to send you copies of the pdf and or if they or how do you feel about them producing something in 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 paper because I know the open gaming license is uh it doesn't really apply in this situation but um you know like I'm always like I like the idea of the open gaming license But as soon as I hear the word license It starts to make me worry whether I'm doing something wrong And I just want to write a game I don't want to you know, yeah. like jump through a whole bunch of hoops So how does that work for you?
1: Well, um, I, I care a little bit about copyright um, I, um, What I tell everybody, anybody who asks What I, what I tell people is um, Absolutely use any of the ideas from the game like I can't stop you, uh, politeness. You know, for politeness' sake, I w- I would be grateful if you said some way in your game this is inspired by Apocalypse or there's something like that by Vince Page. Of course, Faye, of or, course. Um, but I can't even I can't even insist that you do. Uh, that's just a, a polite thing to do. Of um, course. And I say if you want to use my words, yes. Um, ask my permission. And, yes. I've never told anybody no. Like right. I'll, I'll obviously grant you my permission, yes. um, but but you do have to get my permission to use your to use my words. Of course. Uh, but other than that, uh, other than that, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of people using whatever they want. Um, but because because of how hacking the game works, where you're writing all your own moves, yes, um, almost necessarily, you are probably writing changing the stats. Um, there is very little uh, of my words, very few of my words that you'll actually need, and so I haven't felt the need to to create a system document, whatever that is, an SRD. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't felt the need to license it because, for the most part, people what what. For instance, um, Joe McDaldno just published Monster Hearts, right. and he has some sections. In, in the book. I'm I'm really flattered by what he did where, you know, he's he's writing along an explanation for the rule and then he says, um, here's how Vincent said it in right. Apocalypse World and he right. quotes me. Citation right on, yeah. Yeah, and that's fantastic. I love that. Um but but so the the overwhelming bulk of his book is his own words that he wrote from scratch. Yes. Um and he doesn't he doesn't need a license to do that. Nobody needs a license
0: No to do of that. course. Yeah citation, right?
1: Yeah. Um, and so, so I haven't I haven't felt the need to do any kind of licensing of it or anything. I just tell people if you want to use my words, ask my permission. If you feel like slapping the little um, "Powered by the Apocalypse" icon on it, uh, I'll be flattered. Um, yes. I love it when people do that. You're welcome yes. to do it if you want to, but, right. but there's no obligation. No. Um, and I, I really appreciate. Like I, I expect and appreciate uh, a mention in your, in your. Author's notes somewhere Or your credits sure. page Or your thanks page Whatever
0: Yeah for sure Yeah, yeah I wonder Because um, I'm not In that position myself yet But um, someday hope to be um, I imagine it's like uh, You know like I've, I've, I have I've like Oasis And uh, I've seen a number Of interviews with With Noel Gallagher No not least of which, because he's actually very amusing, but also a very astute fellow, and and you know he says that the that the sometimes the songs come easy to him, sometimes they come hard, but sometimes when a particular you know a song comes to him, he 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 re- produces it, and then he knows that it's going to be a good song. He knows that it's going to be a song yeah. that, that resonate with people, um, and I wonder if. Uh, you were in the same position where, you know, like if you're, I mean, I'm not a musician, so I, I'm only guessing here, but I wonder if he thinks, as he's writing, thinking, you know, this is going to sound really cool when somebody makes this a folksy tune, or somebody does an a cappella version of this, or somebody's going to do this with it, like fully appreciating that, that part of music is that, you know, like that people will cover your, uh, yeah. or take your idea and cover it. And is it the same sort of feeling you get when, you, when you're writing uh, Apocalypse World?
1: Yeah, well, I I can only imagine the same as you, but but there was definitely this moment where I was like I think I'm making something bigger than just apocalypse world here. I think I'm I think I might actually be making something that other people will use uh, beyond just playing the game, like and and it was it was it's a really cool feeling, you know, this this moment of I think I might be doing something really cool right now. Mm. Uh yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: It was great so my last question in the getting to know vincent baker section is what games do you play now
1: um right now i'm playing tunnels and trolls and monster hearts uh regularly right now most recently i played lamentations of the flame princess um last fall uh burning wheel at a convention um I might be starting a Prince Valiant game, joining a Prince Gallant Valiant game in progress right. this weekend. haven't decided yet. Right. Um, but so Monster Hearts and Tunnels and Trolls are the two games i right. right now.
0: Okay. Well, um, onto the inside the role players uh, studio uh, questions. In so the first one is, what's your favourite book or supplement, other than uh, something that you that you've written yourself? And it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you play now. You don't necessarily have to think that the uh, that the rules are, are super good, or, or it's just something about the book that you always enjoy. Like you pick it up, you can read a little bit of it. You know, something that if you're on a desert island with one role playing book, which book would you take?
1: Um, it's probably uh, Sorcerer and Sword by Ron Edwards. Right. Uh which is a supplement for his game Sorcerer. Right. And um it is oh, maybe a minority of the book is is uh playing sorcerer in a sword and sorcery setting. Um and and just over half the book is probably genre analysis. Right. And it is really inspiring. Like he that guy he loves sword and sorcery and he gets it in his guts and he's able to, he's able to really communicate his enthusiasm for sword and sorcery. Right. Um, he inspired me to go back and read. Um, I'd never read Conan the barbarian. He inspired me to go read Conan. Right. Um, never read Fafford and the gray mouser. So I read those, um, some of those anyway. Uh, and I went back to Tanith Lee. I've been a Tanith Lee fan since I was a teenager. Right. Um, but anyway, it's a great little book. Recommend
0: it. All right. So the flip side of that is if you could cause one game or supplement to uh, cease to exist, what would it be? It doesn't necessarily mean that you think that it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged in some random way or it came along at a time in your life where, you know, you, you some other unpleasant stuff was going on. You always make that association. And, you know, it can be completely selfish. You don't have to think, well, you know, that's my friend's favorite game. It's just some <laughs> game that you're just like, you know, I could just do without that uh, there for reason X.
1: Oh, I could do without Ars Magica Third Edition for absolute certain. Um, I maybe like if you press me and get me in a bad mood, uh, I, I could do without any Ars Magica since Second Edition. Right. Um, I'm, uh, that's a that's a mean thing to say. I'm sorry, Ars Magica fans. You're great.
0: <laughs> I think they'll I think they'll forgive you on the on the on the um, basis of the other things you've uh, you've produced it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying. To, I'm just trying to sugarcoat it for you. I'm just getting you ready for a whole new set of hate mail there, which I'm secretly hoping you'll get, so you can do something amusing with it.
1: Oh my god, it would be so good to get um, Ars Magica fan hate mail. So that would that would make me about as happy as I. It, mm, I might. Mm, mm.
0: I can give you your email address if you like.
1: Um, <laughs> so, so kill puppies for Satan, right? Um, so so there there were three things that happened to me that, that made me write Kill Puppies for Satan. And um, one of them was that my wife was working and I'd gotten laid off and we had two little kids and it was a shitty, terrible, terrible day. And my wife came home and said, how was your day? And I said, well, I wrote a game and I showed her the first 20 pages of Kill Puppies for Satan. Right? She said, oh, oh I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> And the other thing was, was uh, something stupid I read in some other game. But the third thing was from hanging out on uh, – Ars magic of mailing lists. The Ars magic mailing list out of Berkeley in the end of the nineties, and listening to those people talk about role playing games, oh! So I wrote "Kill Puppies for Satan" just for them.
0: What particularly about them? Were they just being too pretentious about role playing games, or?
1: Oh no, no, no! Uh, they, um, oh, stars magic. It's a game about medieval wizards, right? And they're right. very powerful. Yes. Some somebody did the math on the longevity potions that the magicians take to stay alive for a really long time and uh, determined that all of the official NPCs as presented in the books were completely out of line with what would really happen if the longevity potions really worked that way. Well, <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow, too much time on your hands. <laughs> what do they do at the university? <laughs>
1: yeah. And, uh, uh, uh-oh. Okay, here comes the hate mail. Um, uh, Some of those people are now the the line editors and line developers of, of Ars Magica for reels. they Sorry. were just fans then but they mm. the the monkeys have taken over the
0: zoo <laughs> it makes you worry a little bit you know like if this particular set of opinions is is, is valued then I'm not sure that I'm interested in you know going on with uh, with my association with Ars Magica for that, for that same reason. And so, part of that uh, that hate mouthing thing, I was interested to see that you wrote a small a game called "Fuckwit" the role playing game, which which I, I found particularly interesting because I haven't actually heard a lot of North Americans say the word "fuckwit." Where I'm from, that's pretty um, that's that's a pretty um, often used word. Is it just that I don't move in the right circles here, or is that something you picked up from a from a friend from overseas?
1: Oh, I have no idea. Um, so I grew up Mormon, and Mormons don't swear at all. Um, right. but why (laughs) but but why Um, (laughs) and and so you know when I left the church swearing became my favorite vice and um, I don't get it and I think it's really hilarious how some constructions of swears are are like like they should be correct but they're not yes Um, like my my uh Middle kid when he was four or something, he busted out one afternoon with, What the damn! Yeah. And that's kind of how I've always sworn, yes. um, yeah, because I think it's funny. Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't know, I don't know where I picked up fuckwit. Um, it's yeah. a great word, <laughs> yeah. I love it.
0: Yeah, yeah. My, my children uh swear from, uh, from time to time as well. I mean, I don't have any feelings about it one way or the other. Um, my my eight year old is definitely at an age where he where he could swear, and I heard uh, Kevin Smith, you know, Dogma, Moritz, you know Clerks fame, are uh, talking about how you know he he swears a lot, but yeah. his daughter never never really. Never really picked picked it up, and and I wouldn't go so far as to say that I swear a lot. My my profession is a teacher, so I I have uh-huh. when I'm at school, I'm always editing what it is that I'm you know, thinking and and what it is that I'm saying. So I'm quite used to that sort of duality. But yeah. um, at home, you know, like I'm not scared about swearing, or if they're swearing on television, I don't rush to put earmuffs on my, my right, children, right. Vince Vaughn style. But um, yeah, he doesn't really seem to uh, he doesn't really seem to to do it either. But yeah, one of the interesting you should say about when you left the Mormon Church. One of your favorite things to, to do was to swear Because it was something you weren't allowed to do before And there was a, a girl When I was at school who was part of the exclusive Brethren church um, And I have no idea how that is connected If it is in any way with the Mormon church But anyway, yeah, um, of one of the things was that um, you know, like They weren't allowed to do anything they, uh, there was no television allowed, no external influence. I suppose for the purposes of, you know, keeping, um, you yeah. know, people in the dark and, and all that type of carry on. But uh, there was a girl who I was at school with who I would not have picked her to be the one. But she left the brethren, left the brethren church, and she hadn't been allowed to do things like dancing or anything like that ever. You know, because that was the, the yeah. devil's devil's plaything or whatever it might happen to be. And one of the and two funny things happen at the same time. Funny, but, but sweet at the same time. One, if you've you know, like if you've never seen anybody that's got really got no idea what dancing is all about dancing that's that's pretty funny but in, in a sad way in as much as you know it was yeah. it was it was sad that she'd had been denied that her whole life and she obviously was wanting to dance because that's what people did but just had no idea what that was all about i'm a pretty spazzy dancer myself at the best of times but i'd like to think i had it on her at that time but um <laughs> but the but the best thing about it was when she started to swear because she was swearing like you're saying like your four-year-old you know, like <laughs> you know those are all swear words but that's yeah you know, <laughs> there's nobody's ever going to teach you how to swear properly but that is not how you swear properly. <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, yep. that was pretty um, it's pretty amusing. But yeah, it's uh, yes, <laughs> I don't, I definitely don't. I'm like Stephen Fry, and that I don't subscribe to the idea that you know people swear who have got don't have a wider vocabulary. I struggle to think of somebody with a better vocabulary than than Stephen Fry, and he's certainly in favour of swearing. So.
1: Um, <laughs> my my oldest kid I don't know why I don't know where it came from I don't have any idea What influence gave him this He um He dislikes swearing Like he actively dislikes it and, Is that right? Yeah Yeah yeah. He's 15 now But um He uh He He is always a, a little bit Chagrined And a little bit A little bit Like he 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 feels a little bit Superior to me When I swear And uh, <laughs> I love to swear in front of that kid.
0: <laughs> what have you done so far, Kid? <laughs> I'm gonna swear. <laughs> <laughs> he, he shakes his head and he puts his
1: forehead in his yeah, hair. Yeah, that's that's and his I, idea I, of um love, That's so juvenile yeah.
0: <laughs> this That's his idea of regarding It's like cow what's his name, Saffron is it, from Absolutely Fabulous? Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's sort that sort of idea, hopefully uh Hopefully he'll be all right with it eventually. So uh, are there any games or supplements that you're particularly looking forward to?
1: Yes, um, I'm really looking forward to. I'm going to name three. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, Monster of the Week, which is an Apocalypse World hack that's coming out soon. Um, uh, Mike Sands is um, publishing that, and I think he just got proofs back from the printer, so I'm very excited for that. He had an Indiegogo campaign a couple of a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Right. Um, and The Regiment, which is John Harper and Paul Riddle's um, Apocalypse World hack set in World War II. Right. And uh, Paul has been writing up what happens in their game. And it's breathtaking, spectacular. Right. Um, uh, they've, been, they've been sort of reenacting, playing out um, Market Garden. Right. Right. Um, and uh uh it's it's uh it's overwhelming um go go to enigma dot com is i think his his website I'll send you the link sure. um it's it's unreal the, right. the stuff they're getting out of that game right. and the last one is swords without master that my friend epi is he better be i'm I'm kind of looking out my window in the direction of his house um <laughs> yes. and he, he's given himself a countdown uh and in four more days he's supposed to come out with the preview for it right i'm very excited about that swords without master did i say that
0: yes yeah yep. yeah so uh, if you could only be a player oh i have no
1: idea i i'm usually like i i gm i don't know maybe right. two-thirds of the time or something um and I would probably like if you said, "Okay, Vincent, for the next twenty years, you have to." I would. I think I would miss yes. GMing more right. if I was only a player. Um, then I, then right. I would miss playing. That's, that's rough. <laughs> I'm sorry, you must choose. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I of must, course, you must. I'm you must choose. choose. There's somebody waiting outside right now with a dungeon master's screen or a uh, yeah. or a packet of Cheetos and uh, the the pizza for the night's game.
1: Then I choose GM, but I'm leaving.
0: So, uh, when you are going to be a GM, what sort of preparation do you do? (laughs) Now that you're you're committed for the next twenty years, Um,
1: it depends on the game. Yeah, Uh, I'm a a giant believer in um, do what the game tells you to do, and uh, for really for the simple reason that some games demand prep and some games don't. Um, I've come like I'm a I'm a Busy dude I have three kids I have a full time job um, I have uh, You know A garden That's running wild I have Violin recitals I go to sometimes Like like I'm a completely I, ha- I have very little Free time And so um, uh, As As Many Family dudes My age mm. Have very little Free time And so I don't I don't I'm not attracted To games right. That require a lot Of prep um, I'm not uh, not attracted to games that um, are really demanding in terms of playtime or anything like that. Like I, I play uh, we we for 15 years now. We've been playing right. games after the kids go to bed, and right. so we only yeah. have a couple of hours uh, right. at a at a stretch. And so so um, so for the most part when I'm the GM and it's my turn to run a game, we're playing a game that doesn't require much prep. Um, if it requires any prep, it's the kind that I can do while I'm driving home from work, you know, just in my head, um, thinking about how the characters are going to, how the, how, how the characters I'm responsible for, how the NPCs are reacting to whatever the player characters did during the last session and what they're going to do at the beginning of the next session. Um, you know, that kind of prep, um, which is which is sort of the kind of thing right. I think about all the time, anyway.
0: Um, and going a little back to uh, what we were talking about—fourth musicians and, and songs and so on—and so, when you're not sort of developing them or playtesting them or, or trying to work out an idea, do you do you tend to run other games or do you? Because obviously, the least preparation is going to be for a game that you yourself have written, or do you once you've written it and, and sent it out, that you just wait to uh, hear people's impressions of it, or do you continue to play it?
1: Well. Uh, there's there's a little bit more to it even than that, which is that yes. by the time I published a game, um, I've been playtesting it, like I've been I've been yes. actively playing it for in the case right. of Apocalypse World for two years, um, uh, and um, so so I'm publishing that game having been playing I guess a year and a half having been playing it actively almost every week for a year right. and a half, um. And so Then I go to conventions And I run it at conventions And everybody I meet Wants to play yes. Apocalypse World with me And like by Um Last uh, November I was in Luca In Italy at a convention And I was in then Two weeks later I was in New York City uh, At a convention with my friend what? Luke, Luke Crane, And um I figured out that I'd run, on average, two sessions of Apocalypse World every three days yes. for the last three weeks. Like at some ridiculous number, 14, right. 14 sessions, 11 sessions is, I think, what I'd run. And, I, and like, I was done. That was, that was it. Um, and so, uh, like, I barely role-played at all for the next six months. I certainly... Have not picked um, no. Apocalypse World right. back up for the last
0: six. That's well, understandable. Uh, I mean, I think that even if you hadn't written it, but it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's all part of the. That's all part of the thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like I know that with uh, with Victoria, you know, writing it, you know, like I, I I got it done, and and I'm like, oh, okay, it's done, and then I realized that now, you know, a, nine months coming on a year later, I'm you know, like I'm still. You know promoting it and running it and, and doing all these various other things, and now, although having in PDF and you know print on demand and, and stuff like that gives you a lot more freedom. you've got less production costs, and you don't have to worry about you know making up um, the the money that you've outlaid to, to start with in, in various you know, various ways, you have now this document, which is a living document, because whereas previously you know you print it and that would be it, and it'll be out there. And, I mean, you could go ahead and you could change it on your word processor, but if the documents are already out there, then that's it. But with so many more people uh, consuming their role-playing games through PDFs, there's really no end to making sure that everything is just right because every time I... Like, I, I now tr- actively try to not pick up the book because every time I pick it up, I'll see something that I... That I would want to change about it, oh. and now the now I have to change yeah. it because I have that accessible to me. I can't just say, "Oh, that's too bad," you know. There's a million copies of these out there. I mean, not yeah. a million, maybe a hundred for me, but but you know, there's a hundred copies of this out there, and there's nothing I can do about it. Oh well, but that's just sort of like the tip of the iceberg because you've got all the PDF people who get updates if you change the PDF and, and all that sort of stuff. That there yeah. really is no cut off point.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you're when you're printing your books, like I I, I do print runs. Um, between right. 1 and 500 yeah. at a time, basically. And um, that means that I could, I could be doing revisions every, every couple right. of months. I could be doing a, a new revision yes. if I could stand to do that. Uh, there's, there's a typo in Dogs in the Vineyard that uh, was left over from an earlier draft, and I changed a couple of rules and missed that one mm, place right. where the rules changed. And it's still there because I I yes. do not care that much. I'm not going to go. So so you know, every every six months or something. Even still, somebody writes me and says, "Hey, I found <laughs> a typo in Dogs in the Vineyard." And I say, "Thank you." <laughs> I always say, "Oh, that typo, my old nemesis," as, as though there was something there other than the That's being right. Too yeah, it's kind of like
0: the uh, the, you know, the Star Wars <laughs> movies forums every. Every three or four months, somebody will pop up and say, "Did you see that bit when uh, C three PO and R two D two are in the control room and the stormtroopers coming and that stormtrooper hits his head on there? Did any of you guys see that?" And everybody who's, who's seen it like a million times and has been in the forum for, you know, four or five other people having the same revelation are kind of like, "Yeah, I think we, I think we caught that." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the thing, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm. I get to the other end of the scale on that one. Every time I see something, I say to myself, I'm not going to do it. And then I find myself at 2.30 in the morning when I've got work the next day. And I'm, like, going through and I'm doing this. thing. okay, <laughs> now what's the flow on effect of this? What's the domino of this? And I'm going through and I'm just like, Jesus, I, I wish I wasn't like this some way. Yeah. But, but in other ways, it's good because, you know, it meant that when I was producing it, I was, you know, dotting my I's and crossing all my T's. And I don't know – well, actually, I could work out how many revisions I've got because every time I made a revision, I would, I would track it. So, you know, I've got these – yeah. Gigabytes and gigabytes of of, um, of these of these problems and, and 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 you know fixes and all that type of stuff and it's just and for me it's never ending. I try hard to shut it off, but but that's the thing I find the most difficult, the most draining is seeing something, and that's why I try not to look at it because if I look at it and see it, I'll fix it. But if I don't look at it, I won't see it. It won't get fixed. And I I don't have a lot of fans writing me telling me that the uh, that there's problems uh, with the book, but um, I'm hoping one day I'll have that same that same issue. Um, so. Uh, yeah. What's the perfect number of people to uh, to role play plus the GM? Right. Three plus the gym. And do you have game groups with three people? Because a number of guests in the past have said, you know, like we try to have four um, because although three for us is perfect, you know, the more grown up you get, the more real world things impinge on your role playing time. And although it's possible to say, okay, this is my role playing time, I'm not going to let anything supersede it, if the kid suddenly starts throwing up, you know, like unfortunately or fortunately, depending on, on how you look at it, you know, that's something that you uh, that you that you get to take care of so you yeah. know having that fourth person allows for that you know that if somebody is is away cuz with two people you lose that that nice dynamic
1: uh we we've arrived after some years at a pretty good thing um here in western mass there there are, oh i don't know maybe a dozen role players uh, i know um where where one of us will say hey i want to run monster hearts who wants to play monster hearts i'll I I want three people But I'll take five If you guys Are really Insistent And so You know Whoever Whoever wants to play Monster Arts does Um And So we We don't We don't have Groups Like I don't have A group I have this This larger circle Where I'm like Hey I want to try Lamentations Mm -hmm. of the Flame Princess Who's in And and I get five people Or six people Who say I want to play that And so we schedule a time And we play it Um and for the most part, they wind up being bigger. Um, uh, like I can't remember the last time I've played with right. GM Plus Three, um, even though it's my favorite. But that's just because you know we're all excited and we're for all sure. enthusiastic. And we want to sure. get together. That's, that's a bigger part of it too. Um, I find the more
0: the, the older you yeah. get and the more of this real world stuff that you uh, that you get to deal with, you know, the social aspect of, of role playing is is more and more important. And although the game itself actual game time may dwindle you know like this just the hanging out with friends with similar interests is, is the best part really for me anyway
1: yeah. yeah another thing that goes on a lot around here is that um most of us are coupled up in one way or another right. and most of us both partners play games nice. um and so uh you almost have to. You almost have to count by twos when you're putting a group together. Right. Um, uh, and so three is kind of, I, I guess, with GM plus three, if that were two couples. But sometimes, sometimes two couples in the dynamic is not great. No. Um Sometimes you don't get. Anyway, anyway, so yeah, most mostly it works out. But I don't usually get to play with only only GM plus three.
0: Right. One of my uh, previous guests had mentioned that when they get together, they hire a babysitter. Um, between them who takes who wrangles all, all of the uh, children have you
1: experienced anything like that we do that for conventions right um, we do we do a little neighborhood convention called JiffyCon uh, every year or a couple of times a year and um, you know we have it at the game store or at uh, some kind of public space we rent and we've always hired babysitters for that right but for regular gaming nights um, we don't right um our kids, uh, my oldest is 15 now. Right. We're finally uh, the youngest is the youngest is six. Right. And I think for a little while, for a couple of years, my wife and I could have been saying, "Okay, kids, we're going." Uh, yes. I, I like to say, "Burn the house a minimum of down." A yeah. Minimum <laughs> yeah.
0: Of down. Just a little scorch um, around the edges if you can manage <laughs> it. <laughs> uh,
1: but now, now we've we've sort of figured out that we can do that. Right. We're Like, hey, kids, we're going to go to Emily and Eppie's. We're going to play games. Right. Nice. Burn the house a minimum of down.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so um, it sounds like you've kind of answered this question a little bit. But just for the people that maybe missed the making the connections, here, how often do you role play and for how long?
1: Um, well, I'm I like I say I've barely played games since last November. I'm just starting to pick it up. Um, we're lucky, even even when we're going fast and furious. Oh, I'm I'm telling lies. Um, last year. We played twice, three times a week. Sometimes it was nuts. Right. Um, right. Right now, I'm playing a little less than once a week, and that's fine with me. Right. Um, and then we play. We play after the kids go to bed, so we usually only play for a couple hours at a time. Sure. Um. Which I kind of like. Like, there's not very much in my life that I do for four hours. Right. I don't. I don't watch a movie for four hours. I don't. Uh. Uh I, uh I don't know what else you do for four hours but but so so it's very difficult for me to sort of hold four hours as the ideal amount of time for a role playing game, sure. which I used to do when I was in college right. that's that's what I expected right um, four to six hours right. but that seems crazy to me now uh, i don't I don't know how anybody has that kind of space
0: right yeah, yeah for sure yeah so it's, it's a big it's a big chunk of time, I think probably I get out for four hours. Um, but probably two and a half hours of its role playing. You have got eating dinner and, and talking about yeah, your work yeah. week and 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 that sort of thing that that cuts into that uh, that whole time. So yeah, two and a half three hours of probably actual solid solid role yep. playing. Um, so should males uh, play females, and you can take that either way, and or address both if you like. Like, you know, sh- should males not be doing that, or uh, should people sort of really extend themselves when it comes to uh, to the roles that they take on?
1: Well, that is a that is an interesting question. So I'm mostly GM, which means I've never seen the big deal, right? Because obviously, I have some of my characters are men, some of my characters are women. Yes. Uh, what's what's the problem? Um. So so I I always think yeah, of course they should. Of course people should. I mean people should do whatever they want. Right. Um. But I don't i don't need to say that yeah of course people should like i I don't need to say that if you're not you're letting us down somehow that's right yep Yep. um i don't know sometimes i lose track i have also i've also since college i've always played with um mixed gender uh groups of players um very, very rarely. Like, I could probably sit down and count count the ten sessions or something that I've played since college right. where it was all, all dudes. And um, so seven of them were at conventions. Right. And so, you know, I can see where in some groups the choice would be do we have all-male characters because we have all-male players and are we – like, should we play some cross-gender so that we have some some female characters around, right? I don't know. People should do what makes them happy.
0: Oh, for sure. The sort of question that goes along with uh, with that is one in, out of three probably people these days, or thereabouts, uh, role players are females, um, yep. and that number is is hopefully growing, and, and we'll reach parity one day, perhaps. But um, within that, the number of women that are GMs, in my experience, is not proportional to the number. Of men that are GM. so given that you've got a group of, of females fewer of them will will put their hand up to be uh, to be a GM and, and and how I sort of dovetail that with the the question I was asking about males playing females is if, if you're going to go ahead and play a female do you when you take on that female role do you get an authentic or authentic ish experience of being a female if your GM is in fact male and can't relate to you
1: i I don't even know i don't I don't even know how I would consider that problem um so um there's this game called kagamatsu do you know this game Uh, i i
0: forget i think it might even be jen dixon that was talking about that that game so no only only the little bit of research that did after she mentioned it
1: yeah so um uh that game um is about a wandering samurai who comes to town, and the village needs this samurai to stick around and protect them from the bandits or whatever. Right. right? Um, and the rules are that a woman must play Kagamatsu, the, the samurai, right. who's a man. The, yes. the character's male. The player has to be female. Right. And um, everybody else plays women in the village who are trying to... Um, Seduce or convince Kagamatsu to stay and protect them. Right, um, and I've never played it, and that's very interesting. So you you have this hmm. female player who, by by choosing which of the which of the women of the village Kagamatsu responds to, hmm. is really judging the the way. I as a as a man playing a woman in the Mm, village, the mm. way I portray a woman, um, and that seems like that seems very educational.
0: Yeah, the reason that I formulated the question was, um, first of all, I've never played an ongoing game group where where I have a female character. I've played plenty of conventions, run plenty of convention games with with girls in them, and I always wonder, uh, you know, how good my how good my girls are. And talking about uh, conventions, have you ever been in a situation where you've had to, you know, kick somebody out of a convention game because of being, you know, obnoxious, where they're playing a character in a particularly offensive way, or you know, decide they're determined to play a, a female and they're a male and they're just, you know, trying to, uh, you know, just be saucy and play up these various sexist stereotypes, and maybe got other people at the table that are, that are uncomfortable.
1: Uh, I haven't, but uh, I do most of my convention role playing at the. In the exhibitor hall, doing ten and fifteen minute demos. Right. Um. Um. I. I don't do much. Like I don't. I don't go to most conventions to play games. Right. Um. When I do, they're local conventions. You know, Jiffycon or this convention with Luke Crane in New York City. Right. Where I know. I know the people. I know what I'm getting into. These are my friends. Right. Of course. Cool. Um, and, and associates, and so so at, at big conventions. So I have I have absolutely cut demos short. Um, right. Um, but that's sort of that's a much lower stakes thing to do mm. than say we're at you know, hour two of our four hour scheduled game, and I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Yes. Um, where I can just say, and that's how the game works. You can buy it if you want to. Yes, <laughs> you know, put, my, put my hands in the air yeah. and say, "But please
0: go now." That's the end of the demo. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Give me you money know. and take a book, or just go. No, yeah. <laughs> we'll call it even. <laughs> um,
1: there, there have been a couple of times, especially doing kill puppies for Satan Demos. Yes, um, you might think that putting kittens into a blender would never get old. It gets old. Um, <laughs> but th- there were a couple of times when I was rude to rude to some customers, right? Who we're like, I put the kittens in the blender. And I'm like, uh, okay, fine. <laughs> this is how the game works. If you want to buy it, it's right there. I'm going to go get a drink or
0: something. Yeah. Okay, so there's a top tip. If you see Vincent in his, in his booth, not even to be ironic, put a kitten in a blender. <laughs> now, if you could try and force a blender into a kitten, that may be amusing. But um, <laughs> There's
1: this funny thing I'm going to tell you. So when I, when I do Kill Puppies for Satan demos, I really like to... um to to So, so you know, they'll always put the kitten in the blender The kitten's always going to the blender right. And I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe you put the kitten in the blender I've changed my mind about playing with you That must sound so terrible Can you imagine how terrible that sounds? You don't drink it, do you?
0: Surely not <laughs> Oh, I drink it, I drink it <laughs> <laughs> Not on the briar patch, please Not on the briar patch Yeah <laughs> brilliant you've got to find a way to keep yourself entertained i guess do you or uh or should gms fudge roles and we're going to skirt around the whole issue of whether there should be a role there at all like do you think that the uh the gm's role um should be like everybody should be able to see it and everybody knows what the stakes are or does the gm have some latitude to uh to to tinker with the story as it as it goes along for what they perceive is going to be the greater good
1: well uh, the the games I design, um, uh, I don't think the GM has the opportunity to fudge roles Sure, in any, um, sure. Um, like I, for for me personally as a designer, I'm not going to publish a game where the GM has to fudge a role No,
0: absolutely not. Um, yeah, for sure.
1: I can imagine as a designer, I can imagine designing a game where the GM fudging a role is the right thing to do. Yes. And that—that's—that's that's a, a piece of good game design because yes. that's something that GMs can do. It's something that's available for designers to use as techniques if they want to. Yes. Like that—that's that's something that is accessible to me as a designer mm-hmm. that I could use in my games uh, intentionally, systematically, on purpose yes. to make the game good. Yes. Um, I don't know of any games that do that, and I so, so that's that's my way of coming down on the side of. If the g m has to fudge a role, that is not a well designed game
0: sure um, absolutely
1: uh, unless unless the designer uh really meant it and it's not a fudge yes not a, not a way of subverting the no the game design yes um but but for the most part role playing games are abysmally designed um
0: yes. Yeah, that's what I have to say. Absolutely, and uh, one of the uh, one of the bits that I have in my in my book, like I, um, I'm not ashamed to say that one of the things I say is, you know, like if if things aren't going, and this is, but the, and I'll qualify this. Like the first piece of feedback I got was a, a chap. Um, Purchased the PDF and said, "You know, like I was with you right up until the point where you said that that a, a GM should should fudge a role." And, and I wrote back to him with a, a long and carefully considered um, answer. He never wrote back to me. But so, if you're listening, please feel free to reply to that carefully worded email. Um, but I was writing the the thing from for the perspective of somebody who, has perhaps, and you can speak to this as well, um, is that when you're designing a role playing game, um, you've got a couple of you've got a couple of, of choices. And for the most part, I would say that. Um, indie games are going to, and I'm going to put air quotes around that because I'm actually going to come back to that and ask what your definition of an indie game is. But indie games for the for the most part are um, it strikes me appeal to people who have experience with role playing. So there's a lot of stuff in uh, there's a lot of assumption, and I'm not this is really pointing I'm not pointing a finger at anybody here, but there's a lot of assumption of what well, people understand certain things about what role-playing is you now there's you, you don't have to go right to to uh to you know point one to say okay you know tommy and sandy come together and they decide they're going to play a role-playing game um and you know this is what this is what a role-playing game is um so if you don't have a seed player at, at your role-playing game that can show you sort of uh, quote-unquote how to do it correctly then getting a role-playing game going can can be a little bit tricky like you've got all these rules i mean you came into yeah. it with, with yeah. your own rules right like when you started yeah. with you didn't have your computer games and so you yeah. you developed something between you which worked out great um
1: i uh i went to a horror movie convention um this spring uh called monster mania con in philadelphia right and um Tried to sell horror games. Like I have a horror game. Um, Epi has a horror game. My friend Brett has a horror game, horror role playing game. Right. And so we bought a little table in the exhibition hall with all the bootleg DVDs and T-shirts, and right. tried to sell role playing games, yes. horror role playing games to horror fans. Right. And um, boy, that was an eye opener. <laughs> uh, they they had no. Um, we we were a long way. Could pick
0: up. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's the thing. anyway. Go on. Yeah, and and so the the um, so I, I decided okay, well you know what I'm gonna go the whole hog with with my game. I'm gonna go from somebody who doesn't know anything about role playing because I not exactly like Mormonism, I guess, but um, along those lines, by by undertaking the project right from square one, it really forces me to analyze everything that that I know sure. about role playing and and you know try and get try and get that idea across. So. People come from a coming from a board gaming background, and you've got nobody, you've got no seed player. You know, it's first of all this idea of you know nobody wins. Like I'm rolling dice, but there's actually nobody who's going to win the game. I can't actually finish it. It's a game that goes yep. on forever. And why am I going to play it? So, so what? I one of the piece of advice I give is you know, like if you're starting out as a GM, and you've got this this cool story, um, lined up and. And and something comes up that you're not able to deal with, or something random happens. You've got your, you've got your characters. They've made their, their, their they've got your players. You've made the characters. They're super pumped to play the game. They walk into a cave, and then a giant rat bites the head off, and then the character is dead. You know, you, if you want them to come back and and play again, you want to at least get them into the game so that they can so that they can go ahead and play. Now my my rules don't support that happening anyway. But for somebody, say, for example, who's playing Dungeons & Dragons or something like that, the idea of getting somebody into a a game, you know, like with such a small community as it is, you know, you get your friend to come along, they're jazzed about playing, and then you you kill them straight away. I think that there's you know, scope for yeah, taking yeah. a look at the bigger picture quite apart from the, the game itself. But but going to the point you were saying about the, the game mechanic, you know, like in my game, you know, I have mechanics where, you know, it's actually to your advantage in some respects to, to fail at something. You know, like you if you if you, uh-huh. if you yep. roll badly, then you know, you get a, a plot point is, is what I what I have in my game. But I mean it's the same sort of idea in, in a whole bunch of other games. Um, and then if you describe a really cool way that you fail then you know you can get some more plot points to use later on, so you get a little bit of um, impetus to, to to carve a scene the way that you want to um, later on. And, and I did that for two reasons. One, is I think that uh, uh, Ken Follett says, you know, like every every scene in a book should end in, in failure in one form or another, apart from the last one for yeah. for the heroes, because that keeps the story going forward. But second of all, one of the things that I really hated about Dungeons and Dragons and, and about um, about some games that are kind of arbitrary is that oftentimes if there's a critical failure the GM will take the opportunity to um to describe a failure which oftentimes is not in character for your character so the example that I that I always give in this instance is you know if James Bond fails it rolls a a critical fail he's not going to suddenly drop his gun like it's a bar of soap or you know, slip right. on a banana skin or something ridiculous, because because one, that's not what James Bond would do. But two, that actually kind of reduces you know the coolness or the feelings that you have towards your character. They do something really dopey, and then they're not that cool character that you had anymore. So you know, you think try and find some. If you get to describe the way that you fail, then you kind of you own that failure, and you get to fail in character, and that's that's really you know where the where the interest uh, at least for me comes from is you know like yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that character development. And if you can bring that into your, your failure, then it's going to make people invest in their failure. They're not going to be ad- feel adversarial about it. They gain an advantage from it. And the game goes on with, with interesting stuff, right? So,
1: Absolutely. I agree with that entirely.
0: So, um, well, yeah, well, then we can high-five, high-five us. High-five. Um, so <laughs> so uh, what's the best and or most inspiring uh, film or television show for you that sort of inspired you to do role-playing? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but, you know, like you watched... I showing you. Went, wow, that's cool! I want to be in a game where that's happening right now.
1: Um, I don't know where I heard this. It was it was sort of the something people said to each other in the part of the internet I hang out with for a couple of years. Um, they would say that the bad fiction makes good gaming. Yes. And so I, I must really want hate mail. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm going to say Firefly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Firefly is one of the one of the big inspirations behind uh, Apocalypse World. Right. And um, I, I was at Gen Con. Exp- <laughs> so I explained to my friend why I was glad that Firefly had gotten canceled. And right. he uh, explained to me how I should shut the the hell up
0: punch me in the <laughs> yes, I, I think that uh, I think yeah. If you're if you're wanting hate mail, I think that's the uh, that's the way to go about it, right there. You know, everybody talks about how much they love Firefly, and, and uh, I finally found somebody who doesn't love Firefly. Like I don't love Firefly. Um, I don't hate it. I, I think that there are some things about it that are good, but I just could not get into it. Part of it is my aversion for science fiction, um, oh. but but another part of it is um, yeah. Just I just I was sitting down, I was just like, okay. Firefly, everybody loves it. This is going to be awesome. Okay, why? There's a who? She's a what? I and then I just, I just couldn't, I just could not, I just could not get into it. Like I love Nathan Fillion. Like I love, I mean, I love that all of his characters are, are tongue in cheek. That's something that I mean, doesn't take his his mm-hmm. quote unquote craft too seriously. And that's something that I did that I did like about it. But overall, I couldn't, I just couldn't get a, a handle on it. But um, but go ahead.
1: Uh, I you're
0: about to get punched in the throat for saying I was you were pleased yeah, with Firefly. No, I, I,
1: um I liked Firefly. I liked Firefly fine. Um but I mean uh but but it inspires such great gaming. Like there's it, there's so much unfulfilled potential mm. in Firefly. Yes. And so much so much that they could never fulfill, so much that they undercut and so much that they blocked themselves from doing yes. um so, so many ways that it let us down. That, um, yes. like the the Firefly of our imaginations, is yes. so much better.
0: Absolutely, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that idea is so powerful in fiction. You know, like, a, I think the only uh, case where I've actually preferred the book, uh, sorry, preferred the film to the book is um, is Rita Hayworth <laughs> in the Shawshank Redemption. Um, mm-hmm. That because the way the book ends doesn't quite get there for me, but that final scene in the movie where he's walking along the beach and they fight and they actually see each other. Yeah. But nothing happens after. You know, like that for me is the perfect ending to a movie mm-hmm. because no matter what those guys said to each other, there's nothing that they could have said that was as good as what they said in my mind, even though I don't have the words there. Right, and that, yep. that idea, you know, like the unfulfilled potential of Firefly, I think is, you know, like like you say, the Firefly game that, or well, the Firefly movie or the Firefly show, whatever it is that they didn't make, that's the best one of all, right? The one that yep. occurs in your head.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, when I was a kid, I was a giant fan of Lady Hawk. That right. filled my imagination with a dude with a big sword. Right. Oh, um, uh,. Jack Vance. Have you read Jack Vance? Have you read *The Dying Earth* or uh, *Lioness*? It oh,
0: does sound. Um, it does sound familiar. It must have been years ago. I, re- I chewed through an awful lot of an awful lot of fiction in my in my teen years, um, um, but I don't know for sure if I read those.
1: He, uh, that guy. Um. Um. Uh. Like he's he's so inspired role playing that he inspired role playing. Um, yes. Like. When you read when you read The Dying Earth, you can see exactly what those Dungeons and Dragons guys were getting at. Right. Um, oh my god, such good stuff. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think Firefly my big first choice.
0: Right. So, who's your favorite villain, and why? Uh, my
1: favorite villain in the world. Yes. Um, it's the why part that I already care about the most is. Judge Holden in Blood Meridian. Is that the guy's name? I should make sure that's the guy's name.
0: Okay, well, let's let's say, let's say that is the why that, that I care about
1: the most. because uh, he is terrifying. He's the most terrifying figure I have ever read in fiction. Oh. Um he's uh, he's uh, so uh, Blood Meridian's a Western, right? Um, particularly, it's. Uh, extremely bloody western by Cormac McCarthy about this band of scalp hunters um, who uh, rape and murder their way across Texas and Mexico uh, in 1840 or whatever year that was Uh, I think it's before the Civil War boy I don't remember anyway whatever whatever. Um, Particularly bloody piece of history, and and particularly bloody characters in this bloody piece of history. What? And um, Judge Holden is this terrifying figure at the center of them, um, who, like, there are these great passages where he, um, he, uh, he hates everything. That he has not seen, because if he hasn't seen it, it exists without his permission. <laughs> and there are these scenes where he, you know, they're looking at looking at um, the the wall paintings in um, in the West, the the ancient ancient hieroglyphs on the on the on the canyon walls, right. And he'll, he'll take out his notebook and he'll copy one, um, very painstakingly, you know, he'll, he'll look at them all and then he'll, you know, he'll see one that, that really matters and he'll copy it into his notebook and then scratch it off of the wall, the (laughs) rocks, um, so that, so that from now on only he owns it and, and, you know, he's a murderer and a, and a uh, rapist and a terrible force of violence, um. But he's a, a mesmerizing, terrifying figure. Right. Fantastic piece of piece of writing. Yeah, and so what is it? so? He he reveals that the universe doesn't make sense. He reveals that the universe um, is not the universe we want. Right. Um, and uh, that that no matter what we do. We are not, um, we're not gods, we're right. not, and we're not special to God. No. we're not, we're not, um, you know, He may be God, the He, he may be the God of the earth, whether that's Satan or the demiurge or any, anyway, right? Anyway, um, He, uh, He, uh, uh, He hooks into into my religious upbringing in a deep way that I don't have rational access to, and he um, um, uh, he, he's he's deeply unsettling. Like he 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 he, uh, doesn't allow me to be comfortable in the universe.
0: It sounds like it's the certitude of his own uh, of his existence, right? Like he's completely um, at peace with the way that he sees the world. Like he's completely comfortable in his own skin and all of the things which he holds up, which don't make sense, make sense if you see what I mean. Like he he yep. convincingly yep. Sh- lets you know that you're you know you literally yep. are nothing and you exist only because he allows you to, and yeah. and and.
1: Yeah, yeah. Th- you know, he, he he puts forward the idea that that war, and in particular this really bloody, merciless war against civilians, um, lo, like he loves all forms of war, but but including war against civilians, including just massacre. Right. Um. He he puts forward with a certain amount of certitude, you know, and, and he's a certain amount convincing, puts forward the idea that that is the ideal human purpose. Right. Um, uh, is this kind of appalling, awful violence. Right. Um, it's unsettling. Yeah. It's good stuff. And good, good stuff.
0: <laughs> and that plays a little bit into this, because uh, over the weeks I've developed um, – what well, not develop? It makes it sound like I thought of it, but um, I've sort of come to the realization that there are sort of four um, main types of villains which which people tend to uh, tend to like, and it sounds like he's of the of the fourth kind, um, which for me is the most interesting, um, and that is that um, we only know that Lex Luthor is the bad guy because the story is told through Superman's eyes, because there is no ultimate truth, right? There is no absolutely one hundred percent certain. Um, Way that everything is correct. So the only way that we know that it's wrong is because Superman is the hero for our uh, for our story. And it sounds like the same with with your chap. You know, there's really this only because of the morals which you've had instilled within you. Are you able to get any kind of perspective on why maybe he's not correct? But it sounds like, and I've not read the books, but um, but he is so certain or so convinced or so convincing. With his own yeah. set of morals and, and guidelines, that you can't actually find any way to empirically say that he's wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the the character we identify with in this novel, um, you know, who who has drawn us into this world, even yes. uh, even less can can you know feels that he's wrong and reacts to him, right. but can't claim any kind of competing certainty. Right. Um, can't can't stand against him effectively,
0: right? Uh, yeah, the, it, it just while I think of it, um, episode twenty is with uh, Jennifer Steen from the from the Genesodes, and and her favourite villain was um, was Maleficent, um, uh-huh. and quite by chance, I was putting the show notes together for that, and being released in twenty fourteen is an animated feature where the story is told from Maleficent's standpoint. So I'm really fascinated to see how that's going to play out in a, in a yeah, Disney yeah, yeah. context to see where, where they'll actually go where they'll actually go with that. So so it's an interesting, interesting confluence of, uh, of ideas there. Um, so yeah. do, uh, if you could be a character in a role-playing game, what would it mean? doesn't mean you can pick up your favourite book and you know, roll up a character and be one. Like it's just all of a sudden, you know, Vincent Baker, you found yourself in armour or found yourself in some sort of power shield or, or something like that. You actually found yourself in a role-playing game and it was real. What, what game would it be and what character and setting?
1: <laughs> um. Uh, I like games where The player characters are In a tough spot They have things that they hope to accomplish And there's no way to know For sure whether they will And they won't be happy Unless they go into danger And accomplish these things And That sounds like a miserable way to try to live Like I don't want to be those <laughs> <two>. <laughs> Sure <laughs> So I'm getting so to lovely. wish what I want here, yeah. <laughs> so I would like to be in a game where everybody is happy. Um.
0: <laughs> I understand it's a My Little Pony role-playing game.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, I'll bet there's too much conflict in that, too much, too much drama for it to be actually. Action- I've watched that cartoon. Those. Uh, I don't know. Maybe those. Ponies don't even fight. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway. My friend Emily made a game called, um, Happy Bunny, Fluffy Bunny, right. the role-playing game. Right. Um, I would like to be a character in Fluffy Bunny, the role-playing game. Right. Happy Bunny, the Because <laughs> then I would be a Happy Bunny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> happy Bunny is happy, yes.
1: Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have one stat, which is happiness, in, in Happy Bunny. Right. Um, and, um... You have three things you can do You can groom yourself You can eat Or you can run and play and These are
0: right, On a fourth thing you can do
1: Oh I, I can't remember Maybe she uh, She draws the curtain over that one <laughs> um, <laughs> But let's say there's a fourth Anyway um, uh, uh, And whenever you do one of those things Your happiness goes to ten Nice
0: <laughs> so that's, that's the character <laughs> So do you have any dice superstitions? <laughs> nope yeah, Not a one, yeah, that's interesting I wonder if it's a game designer thing I think maybe once you get on the other side of the On the other side of the You know, the design equation You know, whether that makes that, that go away Or whether it's designers in general That don't have dice superstitions Because huh. you're the, the yeah, Lenny Bolsera had none sure. You've got none I have none uh, I don't think Sean had any. Yeah, so maybe it's designers that uh
1: yeah.
0: people that design games that issue the, the dice superstition. Or maybe it's a it's a case the other way around where where people that don't have dice superstitions are more likely to be game designers. Interesting. So no what is your role playing elevator pitch inclu- including your uh your go to example of play?
1: Uh I don't know. You mean for a particular game or just for No, no, play?
0: like so so you're uh you're standing there and, and somebody says to you, "Hi Vincent, what are you up to tonight?" and you say, "I'm going role playing tonight." And I'm they say, "Role playing? What's that?" And you it's say,
1: that. "Um, boy, I'm really bad at that one. Really really bad at that one." My friend Ben Ben Lehman, um for a long time he didn't say, you know, it's like D&D. Um, no, that's right, but, yeah. But then he tried saying, you know, it's like D&D, and he got universally positive responses. Right. And when people said, oh, you mean like D&D? And he said, yeah. People would say, oh, yeah, I used to really enjoy playing D&D. Right, Or right. they would say, I've always wanted to play D&D. Um, so maybe all of that nerd shame that I learned in high school, maybe that's obsolete. Maybe I should just say, you know, like D&D. And they'll say, oh. Okay, yeah, yeah, I used to play d and or I always wanted to play D&D. My cousin wouldn't let me play D&D right. with them because I was the little kid. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yep.
0: yeah. Well, that's so, interesting you should bring that up because it leads me nicely to this this next uh, piece that I wanted to, to ask um, about, which is the uh, – I'm not sure if you've read the I, the article in the Wall Street Journal written by a chap by the name of Gertzlinger about um, the HBO show Game of Thrones.
1: I have not read it.
0: Okay. Well, one of the things that he says, like, he's, he's basically dismissive of the series because he thinks that there are too many characters in it and they need one main character to focus on. But one of the things that he says, which I found very interesting um, and kind of plays a little bit into what you were just saying there about using you know, Dungeons & Dragons as an example, I also try to shy away from Dungeons & Dragons as an example because of that same thing, you know, like, I'm thinking people are going to be thinking about, you know, um, bothered about you know Patricia Pulling's bad and, yeah, and all that sure. type of stuff. So I I've, in the past I've, I've sort of angled away from that. But um in the article he he says that um, the show is probably only going to be popular with any and he quotes Dungeons and Dragons types, and that mm-hmm. and, and and sort of that threw up two things for me. First thing is. Uh, considering the tone of the article and the fact that he felt that the show wasn't very good, he's also making a judgment call about what Dungeons and Dragons types uh, like. Um, and it wasn't wasn't positive. But the second thing about that was that by using the phrase Dungeons and Dragons type, his readership he must feel know what a Dungeons and Dragons type is. And when those two yeah. were used together, that's assuming that he knows his, his his craft or his journalism. So when those two were used together, that sort of gave me pause. Like maybe maybe there is still that that shame out there. Maybe you know like that's not a a good
1: angle to go yeah. with. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Ben Ben says that if if you're talking to somebody who's under thirty, yes. um, saying like Dungeons and Dragons is only positive. Right. Now, when we were at when we were at this horror convention, yes. Um. When you know, for for the first day, we started off by saying, "Do you know role-playing games? Do you role-play?" And whether they said yes or no. We lost them right then. Like they didn't. They didn't oh, right. want to think about role playing. They right. didn't. They didn't want to. Like I don't. Uh, and and when instead we were able to talk about just our books and talk about our games and say this is a game that you play, mm. um, they were much more receptive. Right. Uh, so it it must depend on the depend on the crowd.
0: Right. Right. Because. Lenny Bolsera, episode sixteen. His his go to example for that one is your other kind dice, mm-hmm. like that, that system that you have for other kind. And he says that that is uh, like he says that that usually works. So it it doesn't it doesn't get into the whole Dungeons and Dragons business. I don't think he avoided it uh, specifically, but he found that by just giving people an actual example of play using your other yeah. kind system, he felt that people you know got got that idea straight away and 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 Anybody that comes up with anything different um, on the show, something that I haven't thought of, haven't uh, tried anything that like that, you know, I will I'll go out and try myself just to see, you know, like how it feels sort of coming out of my mouth. And I must admit that I'm on board with uh, with Lenny's assessment of it. Like I've I've yeah. used it a couple of times subsequently, and, and people seem to, uh, to to get it. Um and the good th- really cool. the, the good thing that I like about the the other kind of dice and why I think probably it does work is because unless somebody chucks three heads or or whichever way around it is, unless somebody chucks three wins, then you know like you're going to get them with that idea not only there's going to be drama but you know you get you get the opportunity to introduce almost this idea of the story game as well, right where it is actually about coming up with with ways to make the story more interesting which are not necessarily going to go along and make something good happen. You know, right for, your, for your for your character, have you ever yeah. tried using your own medicine on that one?
1: Uh, well, maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I'm glad to. I'm glad to hear that that works.
0: Um, Yeah, it it does. I mean, I used it on a classroom full of kids, and by the time we got to the end, you know, like they all, they were all. I mean, I was only like a a two minutes. I know parents write to me and tell me I'm wasting their their kids' time with role playing. It was was a couple of minutes Um, (laughs) at the most. Um, And and I did the princess in the castle one, which is the one that example that Lenny used. I'm not sure if that's in your in your game, but but yeah, that um, you know that, and they they all they all got it right. They all saw the like just that simple idea. Um, yeah, you know
1: that, that you know. Here's here's a trade-off you have to make. Yeah, here's yeah. a decision. there's a decision you get to make, and it's a trade-off. And, right. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's pretty fun. And
0: you're, would you feel comfortable in your own words describing that for uh, for, for for people? Because uh, you could do ju- oh, it just as uh, better for the other kind. For the other kind. Of dice. Yeah, yeah. Like what that actually means. Because I, I um, I've described it a couple of times subsequently, but straight from the horse's mouth, I think people would probably appreciate that. And, and as I say, it's been unfailingly successful since I've used it.
1: Uh. Huh. I, so, so um, my wife just published a game called um uh, which uses the other kind of dice. So I'm going to use that absolutely as the example for sure. Um, so in cyron you're you're uh, let's say you're a teenager with psychic powers and amnesia who's just escaped from the Men in Black. Right? They're chasing you through the city. Uh, you can set helicopters on fire or whatever you want to do like that. And so whenever, whenever you try to accomplish something, this is the other kind of dice part, right. whenever you try to accomplish something, you roll dice to find out what will happen. And what you do is you roll three dice and you assign them after you've rolled them to do you succeed at your goal, do the people who are chasing you get closer, and does anybody get hurt, for instance. Right. And so if you roll three high dice and you can put a high die in each of those three, then you're excited. Then you made your goal and the people who are chasing you don't get any closer and nobody gets hurt. But if you roll two high dice and a low die, then you have to decide which of those things is more important. And so maybe you put the low die in the chasers so you accomplish your goal and nobody gets hurt. But now the people who are chasing you come around the corner with their black SUVs and uh, they're on top of you. Well, so right. that's how other
0: guys do it, right? And and Lenny does it with coins, like heads and tails.
1: Oh, sure, heads and tails. Yeah,
0: yeah. and uh, and that's things that people have in their in their pocket and so forth. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if that's going to convert to long term players, but you know, that's uh, that's something that um, that I've found know, i found a fact that I'm looking. Uh, from, uh, for the next thing to try for that, but yeah, so far that's been very yeah. successful. And the other, but the other problem that goes along with that, and I don't know if you've experienced that, is sometimes you're in a situation where you know you're, you're, meet, you're meeting somebody who's kind of somebody you're going to be associating with on a on a semi regular basis. And mm-hmm. if you introduce them to role playing, you're kind of going to have to invite them along to a game, and then you get into that <laughs> into that geek social fallacies sort of situation. Yeah. Where, like, do I want to actually make this sound cool? Because if I do, then they're gonna want to come and play, and <laughs> I actually don't. I've got no space for friends right now. I'm all full up with friends. I don't need a new friend. I don't want something. <laughs> you know, I mean, some. I mean, that's probably just me. My wife tells me I'm. Uh, I. I, prefer, I mean, I, I definitely prefer my own. My own company for the, for the most yeah. part, but but yeah. So I'm like, I don't really know if I want any more <laughs> friends right now, and I don't want to invite you along. So
1: I feel that way too. Like I have trouble committing to games, even with people I love and really want to play with. I have a, a great out, which is JiffyCon. So right. when I meet somebody and they're like, "Oh yeah, I, I would love to play games," I, you know, whatever, um, I can always say, "Great, go to JiffyCon dot org or jiffycon.com, <laughs> or whatever it is. Come, come to our conventions. We'll be, we'd we'll love to see you." Yes, yes, um, nice, well played. So, so uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. right on. Okay, well, this is for all the marbles, uh, Vincent. Um, so totaling a hundred uh, system plus GM plus players. What's the relative importance of uh, of each
1: one? For reals. Uh, can I wiggle around with technicalities?
0: You, you can You can answer that in whatever, whatever way you like. Can I
1: redefine all your terms feel, so that I don't have to make a hard choice?
0: Uh, uh, feel feel free to do so.
1: Uh, well, uh, like the fact of the matter is that, so so GM and player. Um, I play kind of a lot of games, not not a majority of games, but I, I play kind of a lot of games that don't have GMs. Right. Um and so like you don't need a GM. Um and I've done an awful lot of freeforming in my life and and a lot of the insights that I've brought to my designs, for, for those of you who are listening who think that sometimes my designs are insightful. I realize that's not everybody, but but much of what I bring to role playing as a designer um is based on my experience is free-forming. Right. So I'm going to go with players. Um, GMs are optional. Formal systems are optional. Um, um, if you have a GM, that GM is doing a job that the players are depending on the GM to do. And if you have a rule set, that system is doing a job that the players are depending on the, the rule set to do. And um, the players are are in in every case the only people who are making things happen.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Vincent Baker.